Ochoa. I have a question for you today. Okay. Uh, a humless question, I want to add, hopefully. <laughs> I want to say that up front. <laughs> um, I want to know what you are reading these days. What am I reading these what days? What are you reading? What are you reading these days? Anything under the sun? What are you what Anything. type of media are you consuming? Hallmark. <laughs> just, <laughs> that's just how I can just rest. Um actually revisiting a few things. I've got right now I've got Penny Kittle's um mm. uh 180 days on my desk that I've been looking into as far as like professional. So I'm revisiting that right now. Um Again, I think I already shared with you. I've been I've been reading and going back kind of to the classics a little bit, and then I'm trying to read, you know, a few of the the things uh, right now. Um, I think Dry is on my list, but I haven't. It's sitting on my table, but I haven't got it. I hear that was from last I hear year. That's intense, yeah, Neil Schusterman. I hear it's intense, and the kids were wanting me to read it, huh? Mm. That's him and his son, right? Didn't he write that with his son? Mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah, that's what I'm understanding. But you know, I'd have to look into it more my uh that got recommended to my librarian she i was looking for stuff and she just recommended it to me and she was like i read this at the start of the pandemic and it was the wrong choice so hopefully it's the right choice for you right now just because you know the whole idea is that they run out of water so just you know mm-hmm. just insert one one uh trauma happening in the real world for another you know sometimes it's hard to read during certain times but well, that's, that's kind of how it came up is because, um, well, you know, I taught geography for a long time right. and uh, so I don't know how it came up, but it came up in one of our, my discussions with the students. They were learning different things. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, some one of them's researching water for some reason. And then I ended up talking about, de- you know, oh, trees. That was another thing we were, t- somebody's doing the rainforest. And then I started talking to him about deforestation. And then, um, and in doing that, I was talking about how the Sahara is growing. And then the kids go, oh my gosh, that's like dry. And then, anyway, we kind of started. So they told me I needed to read that. So one of them went, came in and brought it to me and put it on my desk. So it's on your list. It's on my list. But right now, I've been still finishing that Jack London, taking me a little while. I've, I really have been doing a lot of volleyball. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I've been reading rule books, volleyball rule books, yeah. making decisions that way. I think. Uh, so I, I know I, that's kind of weird, but this is my I, slow time. I just got an image of you like, you know how doctors mm-hmm. like look up symptoms to make sure they're diagnosing correctly. They look up medications and stuff like that. Like, yeah, I just got a vision of you like seeing a call and pulling out this book from like your back pocket. I'm like, hang on. Let's let's let's. <laughs> Well, actually, actually, um, there was a a calling and and I made the call and I was challenged. Mm. So a coach challenged me and a coach, they can challenge you. Right. But if they challenge you, it's a risk. If they are wrong about the challenge, then they lose a point. That's Mm. how that works. So you, when you, when you make a challenge, you really got to know you're right. She was pretty insistent on it, and I actually had an older rule book, but I had uh, just a two-year-old rule book. Yeah, and uh, I found the rule that supported her challenge, so I did get I did get defeated on my challenge, and she got to keep it, and the other team lost their point. 
So yes, there I was in the middle of a huge game, and it's huge because we're talking about playoff games. Yeah. And I'm in I'm in this game because I I call referee volleyball in uh, for high school, and uh, I got sure enough, but on my Kindle, on my Kindle, let me see what's on my Kindle. I'll tell you what's on there. But anyway, so on my Kindle, I had my volleyball rule book, and get this, get this, the the book that was up there was Flat Fletcher's book. That was the one that had to move out of the way to get to the volleyball book was the Fletcher's oh, book. That's so funny. You know what? What a great example of authentic literacy helping you out. You know what I mean? This is uh-huh, this is a uh-huh. shareable moment for the students. <laughs> but with that <laughs> said, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Crafted Draft <laughs> with Pam Ocho and Jacob Chastain. We are going to talk about all kinds of things here. We talk about workshop. This is your first time listening to the podcast. Welcome. We like to do these little questions as intros, just a way to kind of start things and get it going. And I'm sure we're going to go all over the place. But our main goal today is to really talk about relinquishing control. Sometimes that's hard for teachers to do, but I think it's essential for reading and writing workshops. So we're going to dive into that. But before we get into that, I have to tell you what I'm reading. Okay. All right. I have, this is well, why I, I asked you this question. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh well, no. On my the other the the other one that I was reading, because that's the thing is I have like about three or four books up at the same time. Yep. And that was um, well. Let me. Anyway, it's on my Kindle here, and it is my grandmother asked me to tell you she's sorry. So by Friedrich Bachmann. So that mm. that's right there on my Kindle. See, I'm on. I'm on. I got sixty percent read. So do you so read most kind of, of your stuff on Kindle? You read mostly ebooks. I, I do read a lot of e-books, and one of the reasons I do is because I can preview them easier. Another book that's real good is Game Changers. My son has me reading that. Mm-hmm. So my problem is, is I'm reading, like, I don't finish books sometimes because I, I get too many of them. But Game Changers is about the special forces. So yeah. So anyway, well, he's, like, he's all into Army. So I, I have a, an eclectic thing yeah. that I read, but that's, a, yeah, but I do, I read on my Kindle cause I'm so busy that I can just, I can take my phone everywhere I go. So, you know, if you never write an autobiography, I'm going to write your biography because you have <laughs> there's so many versions of you and you have so many, like, like you said, eclectic little interest and you mm-hmm. know about more random information than I think I've ever met <laughs> anyone else in my entire life. But that informs so much about how you view the world. I think that like the, the random stuff that just, it's not random. It's all your life experiences, but like all of that mm-hmm. information just kind of informs how you make certain decisions. But um, in any case, okay. Right. So what's your, what are you reading? Cause you're, you're more of, you're really a, I think you're a true reader. I mean, I'm, well, I'm kind of a quasi eclectic, whatever. Well, I, but. I do similar to what you do. I, I start and stop books all the time. Like for instance, at the beginning of quarantine, I ordered um, Stephen King's, 11 something 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 64 whatever whatever the JFK date is of his assassination is that book where um, oh November 22nd 
Yeah, eleven twenty two. Eleven twenty two. Yeah. Uh, he and I. I've been. I read it like two hundred pages, and I put it down, and then I just picked it back up, and I read like two hundred more pages, and I put it down. Not because it's bad. It's just long, and sometimes my attention span, like I want to kind of move on, and I can if I find like a stopping place in like a book that's eight hundred pages. A lot of the times, I'll set it down. That's not what I'm reading right now. It's not what I wanted to talk about, but that is um, one that I'm still kind of in process. So I do the same thing. I go back to books all the time, and I remember exactly where I'm at. So, like, I'll pick up – my wife hates me because I'll, I have all these books stacked on my mm-hmm. nightstand of just books that I'm just casually reading. I'll, sometimes I'll get sucked into one and read a lot, and sometimes I won't. Well, really, on my bedstand, you know, it, mine are magazines. I just mm. – I love magazines. I love mm. them and throw magazines, so I have a lot of magazines just sitting there. All, all different kinds. I used to read when I was back back in the day when I was a Walgreens clerk. I used to read magazines a lot. I, I would read Time magazine and some of the mm-hmm. more highbrow stuff. But um, I'm I really probably lowbrow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the real world. That's right. I don't read none of that. No, but so what I've been reading right now is so Kaylee and I, my wife, we have been obsessed. With the Hamilton musical um, that came to Disney Plus. We watched it. What's funny is we watched it once and I had kind of already knew some of the songs because I had downloaded um, Lin-Manuel's. He he has what he calls a mixtape of his music where it's kind of like he redid some of the songs in a more pop and hip hop kind of way on this mixtape so i knew some of the stuff so when i watched it at first i was like oh yeah i know some of these songs but they're kind of different so i came from it from like a i knew the weird versions before i knew the real versions (laughs) and so i watched it and i was like oh this is really good i love this but i wasn't obsessed and then kaylee got obsessed and she was listening to it all the time like in her car, she downloaded the the musical album, was listening to it, and I was like, man. And then something clicked, and like I was like, I want to listen to that again. And so we've watched it several times at this point. I'm listening to the musical, and I was like, you know what? We and her and I decided we want this biography. So we bought two copies of Alexander Hamilton's biography, which is the the plays based off or the musicals based off of. So I'm listening to the music in my car on the way to work. And then during read time with my students, I'm reading the history of the, the, uh, what the musicals about. Awesome. Well, it's one, it's so good because it's a, as an artist, I love, and this kind of fits into what we've talked about before. Kind of, I think, Diving into some of this is, you know, my multi-genre stuff that I always kind of talk about Mm -hmm. that we've talked about on the podcast, which is, I I think that's why I'm enjoying this weird thing I've fallen into because I can watch this musical and I can listen to them talk about it. So, and I can analyze it from a musician's point, a writer's point of view. I can do all of that. And then I can read this biography, which is written by someone else, but it's based on that. So I'm getting like this multi-genre approach to the life of Alexander Hamilton. And I, I mean, if you would have asked me a year ago if this is what I was going to be obsessed over right now, I wouldn't have told I would you. Have said, I would have said no. Yeah. You but I'm in gardening. Well, yeah, the gardening and farming, right? <laughs> but the... But in all honesty, the biography is really captivating. Hamilton's life is kind of bonkers. Like, I'm learning so much. And it's also, I really love history in general. Like, I, I actually do, in reading, you know, just the 
the the life that people lived in, you know, the 1700s and stuff like that. I mean, it is a wild, wild time. I mean, kids going to college mm-hmm. at like 13, like it's just unfathomable in terms of what we do today. So that's what I've been reading. I've been learning a lot and uh, being super obsessed with Hamilton. So that's my life currently. Well, he's an interesting, he really is an interesting character. And, and you know, the kids, uh, just the other day, some of my kids brought up Hamilton. So, I mean, the kids really well, enjoy. That's the power of that musical, which is, you know, I said this to my friends and they kind of made fun of me because they don't believe it. But I was like, Hamilton is a, is a, tr- is what I consider transcendent art. The musical is because it's, it, it crosses genres. I mean, he has hip hop with American history, but he, he does it in a way that's true to the American history. I think it's patriotic in a lot of ways. Like I think a lot of art that, um, quite frankly, a lot of art that's kind of in the liberal arts are, you know, they're kind of condemning of some of the founding father stuff. And I think he is, he opens it up to have a more modern conversation about it without being demeaning to the real accomplishments the founding fathers made in America. Like, I think he's very respectful of, yeah, you know, there's some things that we can question. And of course, you know, these people own slaves and stuff, but there's, there's a history you have to, like, it's not, it's a nuanced whole issue. Like the people, the, the country that we live in today was greatly influenced by people that were, that were great, but also flawed. Like you can't, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. Right. So, and I, I think he, I think that musical allows us and allows younger people to really interact with history in a way to where they can look at some of the, these real realities, but they can also appreciate some of the really amazing stuff that happened. I mean, throwing, like, rebelling against a king is not an easy thing to do, so. Right, and do it so successfully. You know, the the thing, too, you know, we, we started this whole thing talking about literary, li- yeah. literacy, and I don't think you could find a group of people that were more literate in their time. I mean, right. I think... Um, I mean, Madison read over a hundred books mm-hmm. on law and government just to be able to figure out how to do the Constitution. I mean, these were very well-read people. So, talking about what you know, be interesting. What were you, what were they reading during the time? Well, and that's honestly that's what I think I love about. Um the biography the most is, you know, Alexander Hamilton, his life and his ideas are really fascinating, but there's so many primary documents that he cites because Hamilton wrote, um, Mm -hmm. just so much. Like he wrote, there's like 22,000 texts attributed to him alone. He wrote the majority of the federalist papers and the, for the constitutional convention, all of that other stuff. So he has, there's all of this primary documents that we have of his language. And it talks about how like, how he, when he went to college, he references all of these, you know, all of these thinkers and all of these scientists and stuff like that. And he talks about, you know, we, we see George Washington in a, in a different light and you see James Madison in a different light and you see so many of these, uh, people who are like George Washington, which is kind of funny about him is he really wasn't on the intellectual side so much as, uh, some of these other people like Thomas Jefferson and stuff like that. And, it's it's a really interesting look into the power of literacy and really like George Washington gets a lot of credit because of what he did and the person he was but it's kind of you know it's the it's the other people that really drove some of these decisions because of their literacy and their education mm-hmm. which is really fascinating to think about. Yeah, it is. I mean, when you could donate your entire library and it becomes the 
Library of Congress. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you've you know you're well read, and but I mean just the just the thought alone. But I don't think they could have done that kind of thinking without being literate in their world. Mm-hmm. And but they were literate about all different types of things. I mean, it was true literacy because yeah, they wide. were inventors. They were, I mean, surveyors. They they were dip- diplomats. Yeah, I mean. Uh, well, economist. Yeah, I mean Hamilton. He started out as wanting to kind of be a doctor, and he knew mm-hmm. he uh, like knew so much about anatomy. But he also had this like experience with commerce and and all this other stuff. And what's funny is that they were like fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, like early twenties. Like these, like, you know, when we think of the founding oh, no. fathers, like we think of like these fifty year old, sixty year old men. Yeah, but it's not true. Like they were no. very young. Yeah. No, it's 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 fascinating. So I think that's neat. Well, and, and I we think, could ju- go ahead, mm-hmm. go ahead. No, you're good. You're good. Well, I was going to say to connect to kind of the the topic of this is <laughs> surprisingly this really does connect to what we're talking about because um I think the people who are free in their education to kind of really pursue what they're passionate about and really examine stuff authentically. Like I think the reason why those people were like that, you know, it's wild that they all were together in one spot and it's why it's, you know, the circumstances are incredible if you really think about all of them together, but just having people being literate and curious and educating themselves on like, what does it mean to have human rights? Like that is like, if you think of that just in context, like that was a really rare idea Mm -hmm. like that didn't really exist like you existed for the crown and i'm sure there's a historian like nah that's not accurate but you know (laughs) someone listening who's a little bit but i i really do think like just this idea of being literate opens you up to new possibilities and you know when we talk about workshop and what we're doing today when we're talking about building possible revolutionaries for today. I don't think any teacher wants to stand in a classroom and say, I want to raise the kids that'll keep everything exactly the same. Right? Like we don't, right. <laughs> the The future of our nation and whatever country you're in, I don't think anyone really just wants to stay where we're at. Um, I, I think there's, we want to raise the next generation of thinkers, explorers, people that solve problems that we can't even imagine yet, right? Because, I mean, if you think 80 years ago or 60 years ago, 50 years ago, we we had no concept of what social media would do to democracy, right? No, we did not. And and that but that's a that's a problem like we as educators we have to plan for things that we can't even conceive or not plan but build people who can plan and who can think that way and that's I don't know how we do that without relinquishing control. I I agree. I think I think allowing them to choose their own passions and to be able to to problem solve and and think about the future and what it might mm-hmm. look like and how if you know, and, and then also to understand that when you solve one problem, you create another problem. So if you're gonna if you're going to solve that problem, then what are you gonna do with the outcome of yep. your solution? And how, how are you gonna mitigate any kind of wrong issue that comes up because you had to solve that first problem? So I think I think that's true. And it just even if you look through I was telling the students the other day, I just missed my grade book. I missed my old grade book. <laughs> <laughs> I missed my circles and I missed my color coding. 
you know, when I'm, I could, I could like, ride hang whatever on. I, I have wanted. To, I, have to, I have to set this for me, okay? Because I remember this as a, as a, as a student, <laughs> but I don't really, I've never had this as a teacher. So, when you say old grade book, when I'm, so I'm picturing myself in class and I see a teacher open this huge, almost binder sized book that has just all the kids' names and then all the grades, almost like Skyward, just like printed out on paper, pretty much. Is that what you're talking about when you say like this color coded grade book is like this huge, like, I mean, just massive? I'm trying to find something around me that's that big, but I can't, like a binder size thing. No. So so paint the picture for me. What do you I'm, I I I'm missing my green spiral bound pre you know printed uh-huh. spreadsheets. Oh, okay, okay. Where yeah, where I could write all the kids' names. You had to write all your students' names. Yeah. And then you folded the paper just right so that you could go to the next term. And then their names, you didn't have to rewrite their names. But if you folded the paper just right, you didn't have to rewrite their names. And it was all handwritten in your best handwriting, in your best code. And nobody, nobody could understand your code but you. So there was nobody in your business. (laughs) What a time. (laughs) It was a wonderful time. Now everyone's in your business. (laughs) in your business because I can see you from afar. No, I was just telling them that I would, I would have write, you know, I'd write a big circle around the square and then I would write there, you know, that was if they didn't turn it in on time. And so anyway, we had lots of control over our own selves. So what made you miss this? Like, what was this thought process of you? Like, what even made you think about that? Well, you know, when grades were due and, (laughs) And back then when we had our own grade book, see, they would give us the full time because they knew it would take you time because we had to hand, you know, you had to hand do everything. Now, when my dad taught, yeah, now when my dad taught, Mm -hmm. no, I did bubble sheets. We would bubble in our grades and then that would go through a scanner. But when my dad and mom taught, they would sit in the middle of the, of the, of the cafeteria or the library and the secretary of the school would write down every grade of every child. That's how they used to do it. And everybody would yell out the child's name and that's how they would do the handwritten grade books. So wow, it, it was kind of, a, it was just having my own thing. So being, I felt just for some reason, I felt constricted by what was put upon me through the computer, through Skyward. There was, you know, just that particular day, I wanted to do something. I couldn't do it. Well, as far I, as coding, I wonder how you feel in terms of. So you're, you know, over the time that you've been teaching, mm-hmm. do you feel like you are more free to act as your own kind of professional today, or do you feel like it was stronger? That was stronger back in the day. Okay. Well. I think they left you alone more, to be mm-hmm. honest. As far, when I say leave you alone, it, I was at the high school level when I first started, and it might still be that way in the high school, but you were pretty much your own island. You shut that door, but it was very competitive, so nobody shared anything with anybody because it was a competitive atmosphere, not necessarily a team atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And I think now being in a team atmosphere is good in mo- in most situations. But I think what what's happening now, like to me, I've had moments where I've been very constricted, but then moments where I had some freedom. So I think right now, though, with everybody getting to see on Canvas, uh, everybody's seeing exactly what you're doing. 
Mm-hmm. So you have to figure out a way, which I think that's why our craft and draft, you have to figure out a way to meet their standards and yet find freedom within their constraint. Well, you know, I'm oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. No, no. But I think tr- going back to relinquishing control, uh, I think sometimes the art is the art of what we do can be stifled uh, when we have too much control as a teacher. In other words, when I'm being controlled, I don't feel like I can do or be as creative as I want to be. Yeah. So I have to fight that. Well, then I have to think if I'm feeling that way, are my students feeling that way? If I am, you have to do it this way. I need it. I mean, I have a lot of questions. How many sentences does my paragraph need to be? Ms. Ochoa? Well, no, I need it to be as long as it needs to be to say what it is you want to say. Mm-hmm. And that just messes them up because it's quite a bit of removal of control yeah. and they don't know what to do with it. So, yeah, well, that, uh, that's really fascinating. I think the, I think what we, I, you know, part of the reason why craft and draft even a, came up to us was we were trying to find ways to appease the powers that be in a way that wasn't disruptive, but still keep authentic practice. So we're trying to show the power of, uh, of authentic practice, but trying to create a system that would show us evidence where we didn't have to just be like, well, it just works. Right. Like we could literally point to kind of each stage. And I, I, but I want to really hone in on what you said a second ago, which was, you know, sometimes the teacher feels like they're being controlled and then that trickles down into controlling students because, well, we have to get this done. So the kids have to do it this way. Um, And that, that is something I actively fight almost every single day where I, I, I'm controlled in all kinds of ways. I'm at a campus that is quote unquote on the watch list of the state, which means I have to hit certain percentages and we have to hit certain percentages and everything is standardized data. And we have these long meetings and our principal has to fill out these long forms. And if anyone's ever been on a campus like that, it is so obnoxious. So I, you know, I feel pressure all the time, all the time. I feel pressure to do certain things and teach a certain way. And then I go back and go, okay, I don't need to bring just because I need to present this information a certain way doesn't mean I need my kids to experience that that way to give them that like yeah I don't just because I need them to write essays for the star test this year doesn't mean I only need to prompt them all year right like I right. don't right um, but that that's a hard thing to do like I think it's it's scary to also have pressure and then actively still give freedom to kids because freedom is messy. Like <laughs> to go back to Hamilton, like the, right. this whole idea of, I mean, just for the freedom means that you get to make mistakes. Like you don't, it's not this controlled one person speaks all. And as a teacher, that's hard to accept. Sometimes if I'm wanting my kids to work, you know, if it, you mentioned Ralph Fletcher, you know, he talks about like giving, doing a mini lesson on say figurative language. Every one of your kids might not go off and use figurative language that day. But as a teacher, you might feel the need to force them to use figurative language that day. But is that the right decision? Um, I would argue most times not. I think most times it's you teach it and then as students find need for it, they start incorporating it. Mm hmm. 
Well, I think that's the beauty of the workshop, being able to do that. But yeah. then, like you said, we have to follow certain standards. So right. everybody's doing poetry. So I think, I think too, like working with teachers, I think sometimes they, they struggle in letting go because like you said, the constraints are the expectations for meeting that data percentage point yeah. that they're supposed mm-hmm. to meet uh, causes them to go, Oh, well, well, I, well, I, I, I got to make sure this happens a certain way because if it doesn't happen this certain way, then I've got to, I, I got to prove that I did exactly what they tell me to. So I have to do it on this day. And I think sometimes the curriculum or the lessons become too scripted and then the needs of the students are not really met. And, and that goes right. back to we're we're teaching students how to solve problems and, you know, releasing control creates a problem for the student because now they have to make the decision. When you're busy telling them exactly what to read, how many pages to read, what to write, how to, how to put down that thesis statement in, a, in the first paragraph, you know, because thesis, thesis statements always come in the first paragraph. Right. And then you always have to have the conclusion and you have to say your thesis again in the conclusion you can't do it anywhere else. It has to be in the, you know, when you start telling them exactly where things need to be, you need to start this paragraph with first and this paragraph with, you know, and you tell them how many paragraphs, well, then who's doing the thinking? Mm-hmm. Who's solving the problem? And I think that's what we have to be careful of because we have to start asking ourselves, who who's solving the problem here? So how can I create a lesson that allows those problems to exist for the students and still meet the problems that I have that are put upon me by the necessities of, of our uh, curriculum or our standards, our state or our principles. Well, we have interesting. Yeah, it is. And you know, I, I love the phrase that you use of, you know, who's doing the work and who's solving the problem. This, there's a book called who's doing the work. Um, and it's from, uh, Jan Birkins and Kim Yaris and I, Kim and I have interacted quite a bit. I had her on the teach me teacher podcast, but, um, since then, you know, I think she's very insightful. She actually was a consultant for a long time. She just went back into the classroom recently, um, which is by the way, that is a trend I'm seeing. I know you're, I think you're the trendsetter. Oh, um, there you go. (laughs) Because all like tons of people, um, uh, Deanna Jump, who, if listeners are familiar with Get Your Teach On, she was kind of the co-founder of that. She was kind of in the background of that whole Get Your Teach On thing. Like, she was never really the face of it. Um, but she backed out recently, and she was like, I'm just going to teach full-time rather than doing this, you know, this big presentation conference thing. And I, I think that I think that is the sign of re of a true educator. I won't say real educators, but true educators, people that they're an educator to their core because they're, mm-hmm. I mean, you can make tons of money speaking and you can walk around and you can do presentations and you can just go to school to school and district to district and all this other stuff. And you can make tons of money, way more money than you could ever being in a classroom without a doubt. Um, I think the people who give that up, who say, you know what, this money's good. But there's something special about being in the classroom. I think that's a really, really a sign. But back to Kim is this – she wrote this book called Who's Doing the Work? And the whole – it's it's kind of geared to lower – not lower, but just elementary a little bit. Um, I found it really valuable dealing with kids who just struggle 
um, with reading in general. And it's I've seen it as it's a very thin book, but I saw it as kind of the next level of guided reading where guided reading has kind of, you know. Fonta Spinell, I think they've done good for the the reading side of things, but I, I think a lot of their stuff has become scripted. It's become programmy. It's it's become mm-hmm. very much like a system. Districts buy thousands of dollars worth of this, and teachers are, are supposed to follow this kind of scripted system by Fonta Spinell, which, you know, to each his own. But uh, Kim Yaris and, and Jan, I think what they did in Who's Doing the Work is they they constantly ask – you know, if, if kids aren't any better after a guided reading session with you, then what's the point of doing guided reading? And what they mean by that is they use this example of scaffolding. They're like, we use this term in teaching all the time, but if you scaffolding is meant to help you get to the top of a building while you're building it, once you take the scaffolding away, if you haven't built a foundation to allow someone to climb the stairs up to the top or ride an elevator, and you take the scaffolding away, they can't get to the top. So you have to give them something that stays after the scaffolding in order to get them to where they need to be. And that just connects to what you were saying, which is we need to, I think the reason why workshop is so powerful and why teachers really need to let go of the control of what kids read and write is, um, it, that's the only way to give them tools to navigate. Like I have a group of kids, I think I've talked about that on the podcast before, but I have a group of writers who are, they're one of my strongest group. They're, they're really good at what they do. They write really great. They have great ideas. And I've been pulling back a little bit. I've been letting them flounder a little bit. And like, Chastain, you never help me anymore. Their words. <laughs> and I'm like, it's not that I'm not helping you. I was like, you have the tools already. I was like, you have the skill set. You can do this. And they're... They're rising to the occasion, not without complaints, but they have it. They have it already, but I could easily just keep giving them the support I gave them last year. I could keep giving them the scaffolds and stuff like that. But what am I, once they leave me, what does that leave them with? And I, I think that that's what we need to be thinking about is it, leaving control is, isn't about what it means to teach. Relinquishing control is what does it mean to give kids the power to actually do what we're trying to get them to do? Well, and, and I agree, you know, that that's really supportive of, um, you know, Vygotsky and his, led Vygotsky, the psychologist, mm-hmm. um, you know, one of the things that he talked about was that zone of proximal development, that we have to teach them within that zone so yeah. that we can lift those kids or push them up as we need to, uh, if we don't give them what they need. So, so that was definitely in support of of that if you want to know what where the research is for that that works but um yeah i think i think uh that's why you need to conference i think that's why you need to model you know you do need to model for them uh maybe read alouds things like that i think you do can give them some books to read to get them started but then like you said you got to pull away not all at one time or they'll fall so Mm -hmm. you got to as their legs get up under them, so to speak, like a table with four legs. If you, if you only give them two legs, it's not going to, your table's not going to hold. So you want to make sure that you give them all the things that they need. And so you do need the data. And I, and I, I understand that you do need the data. You need to be a good kid watcher and you got to see what those kids need, but then you got to also know, and that's the art of teaching. When do you pull away? When do you have the, um, 
you know, today it was funny. I asked the kids a question and I just stopped and didn't say another word. And they were all like, uh, you can see it, you know, <laughs> and they, they were like, and I'm just staring at them. I'm like, and I asked it one more time. And I said, I know y'all have the answer to this, but you just have to think. So they were just sitting there and all of a sudden somebody came up with the answer, but somebody goes, well, that was just kind of awkward silence. Miss Ochoa. And I said, yeah, but where was the pressure? <laughs> Cause I knew the answer. Y'all, y'all know the answer. You just, yeah. you know, and it was, it was about what they were reading. It was an inference. I wanted them to infer, but, uh, but I just stopped and let them, you know, think about it for a second. Yeah. That, you know, that wait time is powerful. Mm-hmm. So it's those kinds of things that you do that are small and then you have to know when to go in and, and save them too. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I just think it's it's a hard, hard thing to do. I know that you have to trust the process. I think if we, I think um, Jim Delisle, I know we, we talked about that. Jim Delisle is, you know, because my, my master's is in gifted ed and uh, he's a gifted ed professor. And uh, I think from Duke, but anyway, I went to one of his conferences one time, but he talked about uh, perfectionism and the kids that have perfectionism, they don't want to fail. So what they do is they don't even try because they don't want to fail. And so that way, you know, it's not because I couldn't do it. It's just because, well, I didn't do it. And so therefore they never do it. And so you want, so, and he said, the reason students do that is because they focus on teachers focus on the product, the end result more than they focus on the process. And I think if we focus on the process, we will be able to give or relinquish control because it's not about my end product that I'm in charge of. It's really about that student learning and working through that learning. And what we have to do is put things in place along the way to help them move along checkpoints and things like that. And I think, I think uh, it's harder to do sometimes because we have all that pressure we talked about earlier, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the controls that we have on us. So anyway, that's just something that, that I kind of try to do. I'm not perfect, but I try to remember to concentrate on the process. It's the process that matters to me. It's the growth that the kids see that matters to me. Uh, in the long run. Well, and I think uh, that right there, I think really sums up, uh, I I mean, just a lot of what we talk about all the time, which is this, we have to, I mean, process over product. I mean, always, always, always. And what's annoying and what people probably find challenging about this is, um, School is not designed to be process over Mm-mm. product. It's 100% no. designed to be product over process. And that's, I mean, that's a holdover from the manufacturing age of our educational system, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything from grading to how we assess kids, it's always, you know, you don't assess a kid's thinking on a multiple choice problem. You assess them whether they got it right or wrong. That is, that is point blank, the most purest form, product over process. Um, because I have, quite frankly, I've sat with kids who got a question wrong, so to speak. But then when I talk to them about it, I'm like, yeah, I can totally see how your process led you to the answer that you chose. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that our educational system is a little bit antiquated that way is kind of sad. However, and I think this is where you and I have found a sweet spot, at least, I mean, sweet spot in the broad sense to where 
we we understand our limitations. Like I think the the beautiful part about what we talk about on here is we're not teachers who aren't in the system. We're not speakers. We're not pure presenters. We're not any of those things. We're real teachers in a real district in in Texas, <laughs> and we deal with the same problems relatively that every teacher in America deals with, which is we have these standardized pressures. We have things that we have to hit. We have percentages. We have data that we have to speak to. Um, we have the PDSA walls we have to have. We have all of those things, but we do those but at the same time, leave room for this authentic learning because we know that authentic learning is what drives that. We know that allowing kids, we know that allowing kids to write is, it's going to inform their reading. And we know kids that reading more is going to inform their writing and both of those. And once kids are reading and writing, then we can start teaching them the art of school. I, don't, I think a lot of teachers struggle because they're like, well, my kids need to really answer these types of questions. They need to be able to do this on multiple choice. Yes, but you can get non-readers don't take reading test well. Non-writers right. don't write school essays well. Like you have to, right. you have to, you have to get them reading and writing first. Right. Now I agree with that a hundred percent. And then you take them and say, okay, this is how it's going to be tested. Yeah. This is how it works in the real world, but this is what it will look like on a test. Mm-hmm. And I think that's yeah. uh, that. I think that's the ultimate. I mean, to kind of cap the conversation is I think that I mean that's just that's the freedom teachers have to embrace. And I think some of that comes with time. You have to see it to believe it. Um, well, you have and you to also, trust. Yeah. You have well, to trust it, the process. Yeah. Sorry. And I, you know, no, I, 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 I'm glad you said that. I, I, you have to see it. You have to trust it. I, I think the research helps, you know, if it depends on the type of person you are. Like for me, like, you know, when I read Donalyn Miller, like I was like, yes, let's go. When I read Penny Kill, I was like, yes, let's go. When I read and Nancy Atwell, I was like, yes, let's go. And I put all that into action. Some people read stuff and they're, they're skeptical. They're like, I don't want to do that. So if you're not someone who can apply it that way, you just kind of have to find your sweet spot. You have to find like, maybe I need to do this for a while, but you have to, you know, the research is pretty clear. That, you know, I think, you know, the work that Lucy Calkins and Donald Graves did, you know, that everyone references in workshop, that stuff is still just as relevant then as it was today or that it is today. Um, Alfie Cohn's research is just as relevant. And then you have all of these other people in this industry who have done the research, who have done it. And now a lot of them aren't clinical research, but a lot of them are experienced. I think you just have to find what works for you, try it out and don't diminish it if it fails. Like you can't, I know that's hard to say, especially with all the pressures that people have of testing, but like, don't be afraid to fail. It's okay. Like I have a, mm-hmm. a new teacher on my team. She was like, she was, she was telling me she has to remind herself to not compare her test scores to everyone else's on the team because she's the newest one. I'm like, good. Yes. That is exactly what you should be saying. Like you shouldn't mm-hmm. be comparing like you're, you're learning this is a profession that you, you know, it takes five years to even get competent. <laughs> like, Right. Right. No, it's true. And even, even at 20 and 30 years, you're still learning. Yeah. 
And I think that's why people are listening to this podcast. But I think that's also why people need to take the energy we've talked about on this podcast, Miss Ochoa. <laughs> and they need to go hit that subscribe button if they're not subscribed to the Craft the Draft podcast. And then they also need to leave a star rating, you guys. I know some of y'all are listening to this podcast and you're like, you know... I don't need to leave a star review, but you do need to leave a star review. It really does help us out. So if this episode was enjoyable, if you learned something, or if you really love Hamilton, hit that five-star button. <laughs> leave a review if you're feeling extra, but that stuff really does help us. We release Craft and Draft every single Friday. That way you can have something ready for you to plan with on a weekend. You can listen to us while you're cleaning your house, while you're cooking, while you're lounging, whatever you want to do to do but you know that craft and draft is always going to be released right around that friday time for you just in time for you to think about the next week i know things are crazy while you're listening to this this is going to be thanksgiving week so i hope all of y'all have a great fantastic thanksgiving when you hear us again it'll be black friday so only who knows what black friday is going to look like during covid or hopefully <laughs> get some good online deals but with everything else ladies and gentlemen i hope that you know that we are here for 